Last week we looked at the God who creates. And this week we're looking at the God who decrees. In this series about God himself, it's different than traditional study about who God is. Typically you look at God's attributes of holiness, his sovereignty, his, his perfections, his, his eternality, his immutability, omnipresence, omniscience. And that's a great study to go through. But what we've been going through here on Sunday evenings and continue to go through is how God works, how he acts, what he does. Because so often in scripture, we don't just have a description of who God is, but we see God working. And from that, we gain so much information about who he is and he amazes us. And as we go through the doctrine of God's decrees here tonight, we're going to be just amazed at how big and how powerful and how wonderful God truly is. It's going to bring us great joy. It's going to expose our sin and our finiteness. It's going to, should lead us towards humility and ultimately should lead us towards worship. Now we're talking about a God who decrees. What I mean by a decree is the scripture uses the words decree, but more often it talks about God's counsels, his plans, his purposes, or his will. And that's what we're talking about tonight. A God who has a purpose, who has a plan, who has counsel, who has a will. Okay, and, and how those things are carried out. So we talk about when we talking about God's decree. I want to read to you first off a statement on God's decree from the, the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession. Not as a source of, of authority. We don't hold to this confession here in this church, but certainly uh, it's doctrine we hold to. And we're looking back at these confessions to show this is historic Christianity. These are the truths that were recovered at the Reformation as they went back to the source of Scripture. And so we still stand in that same line hundreds of years later. It says here, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Okay, and if a lot of that we just read there is just going over your head. Boy, that sounds sounds deep, but I don't really know what that means. Uh, we're going to dig into that here tonight as we look through Scripture. What we're going to do is look at four different aspects of God's decree. His, his purpose, His plan, His counsel, that which He has declared before the foundation of the world. Four different aspects of God's decree. And it's going to absolutely boggle our mind and cause us to wonder at the greatness of our God. The very first one on your sheet, number one. God's decree, it is effective. It is effective. In other words, and you can write beside there, it will come to pass. That's what I mean by effective. God's will is effective. It will come to pass. Listen to these scriptures. Psalm thirty-three, eleven. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 46, 9 and 11. I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. I don't know if you can define God's decree in any more effective terms than that. God's purposes are going to stand. Job 42, 1 and 2. Job answered the Lord and said to him, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's plans, his purposes will come to pass. They will. They're effective. When God has purposed, it shall be accomplished. God is not a God who fails. He's not a failure. He's not impotent. He's not powerless to accomplish that what he sets out to accomplish. He's not just a wishful thinker. He hasn't left his plans for chance. He hasn't left it to his creatures to accomplish. Rather, God is ensuring that what he has decreed will come to pass. And it's really a wonderful truth when you think about it. We think about how many times government makes a promise and doesn't fill up to it. How many times even yourself as parents or parents to you have given you a promise and they don't keep it. Or to you, to your siblings, or to you, to your parents. We're fallible. We're finite. We don't sometimes have the power to, to do the things that we say we're going to do. But here God has the power and the authority to accomplish what he sets out to do. And nothing can thwart his counsel or his plans or purposes. Okay, so that's the first one. God's decree is effective. Number two, God's decree is eternal. It is eternal. <clears throat> In other words, it was established before the foundation of the world. Okay? It was established before the foundation of the world. Isaiah 37, 26 says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass. And we already read Isaiah 46, 9 to 11 that says that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. It says, but we impart, Paul talking about the gospel, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory gospel was decreed by God before the ages for our glory. Ephesians 1 to 4, sorry, 1, chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 3, 11, This was according to the eternal purpose, the eternal purpose of God, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And 2 Timothy 1, 9 says, Paul again talking to young Timothy who saved us, talking about God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was established, was accomplished, was done in the mind of God before the ages began. The virgin birth of Christ 
his sinless life, the teachings that he gave, his torturous death on the cross, suffering the wrath of God. That was all part of God's plan before the ages began. And Paul says, this is for our own glory. It's amazing. This was all, this is not plan B for the gospel. The effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, sanctification of believers, our glorification in new heavens and new earth was all planned before the ages began. We're going to see later in Revelation, it tells us that Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. We're going to look at the implications of that. And it's not just the big picture that Paul is talking about, but look again at 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and he called us. He's talking to Timothy here to holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is a personal knowledge of them. It's not just general big terms that God has planned. I like to accomplish this and that kind of a big idea, but rather God has also worked out the details and the personality of it. So we see God's decree is effective. We see it's eternal. And the third one, I want to look at is that God's decree is not based on foreknowledge. It's not based on foreknowledge. Now, this one needs a bit more explanation. The first two are straightforward. It's effectively eternal. This one I mean by it's not based on foreknowledge is that God did not look down the corridors of time and see what was going to happen if he's if he started with Adam and Eve in the garden and he, he started with these preconditions in his creation and based on that, he looked down into time and then saw what was going to happen and then made his plans accordingly. That's not what the scriptures say. I want to read again from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, Yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw his future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. There are people today who basically teach that God is like a supercomputer, that at the beginning he saw all these possible worlds based on all of the all of the free choices and the actions of all these individuals. And then with all of these myriads upon myriads, infinite Numbers of realities or possibilities, God chose one. And then he says, my purpose will stand on that one. God is not a supercomputer. He has planned, not based on his foreknowledge, but based on his own will. And think about this for a second. God's knowledge is not discursive. It's not learned. God doesn't learn anything. He can't. He knows everything. God is not going to look down the quarters of time and learn something and then react God doesn't learn something because he's looked down in the quarters of time. God rather knows what's going to happen in the future because he's decreed it. Okay, because God has intended to accomplish his purposes. That's how he knows the future. Because he intended it to unfold exactly that way. He hasn't learned how it's going to go down. Rather, he's planned how it's going to go down. That's the orthodox view of God, a God who knows all things because of his decree, not because he has learned anything. Look at Acts 15, 16 and 18. It says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So here we see a remnant seeking the Lord, including the Gentiles who are calling after God's name. And God has made all of this known from old, from eternity past. 
God knew what he's going to do in the gospel. God knew what he's going to do even with these people who are his remnant, who are seeking after him, who are returning to him. And it wasn't based on his knowledge of learning something from the future, not contingent on learning something else, rather because of his decree. Look at Romans 9, 10 to 13, where it says explicitly so. Okay? How God's actions are not based on foreknowledge, but rather on his decree. Romans 9, 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election or, or purpose of choice or his purpose might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older shall, will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Before there were any actions on Jacob or Esau's part, before any birth, before they had any thoughts, God's purpose of choice his counsel was going to stand. The younger was going to serve the older. Not because of God looking in and seeing, you know, well, Jacob, he's a bit better than Esau, although Jacob was a real, a, a real weasel. Man, the guy was not good. All right, it wasn't until he was much older in life when he started to act more faithfully. But it was because of God's choice, because of God's plan, because of God's purposes that he called the younger over the older. So God's decree is not contingent on the actions of people, but as this passage states, it's exactly the other way around. Now, one passage that I've heard of before, people um, teaching from Romans 8.30. I want to look at Romans 8.30 for a second. Some would say, well, if you look at Romans 8.30, it talks about how God looks into the future and he sees those who would have faith and then he works in them savingly. Romans 8.30, and I've added square brackets here, not because this is the true meaning of the text, but how it's interpreted. It says, for those whom he foreknew. In other words, he saw their faith in Christ in the future. And it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, but is that the God we've seen so far in the scriptures? His greatest act his redemption? Did he leave its final effectiveness in the hands of sinful creatures? No, God is going to accomplish his purpose. This word foreknew doesn't speak of just gaining knowledge. We know God is not going to gain knowledge as he looks forward down the corridors of time. Knowledge is not always referring to facts. You know, for instance, I can tell you I, I know the prime minister. That means I, I know some things about him. I've read some articles. I've seen him on, uh, on the news. You know, but I don't know him. I don't know the prime minister. This verse is talking about those whom God foreknew in terms of a relational sense, in terms of a covenant sense. Those whom God foreknew, those who were his. He predestined those who were his to be conformed to the image of his son. And that same usage is, is found in Romans chapter 11. In verse number two, it talks about God's people whom I foreknew. And then it explains who those people are in verse seven, Romans 11, talking about the elect of God. And so we see this, see this word as it's used here in the book of Romans. It's talking about God's people had an intimate knowledge of them. He has covenanted to redeem them. 
Now, as we start thinking about God's knowledge and God's decree and God's actions throughout time, it can begin to start boggling our mind and, and, and thinking about different questions and objections. And we're going to handle some of those tonight. But I want to look at the fourth one before we look at some of the questions that are no doubt brewing in our mind. If your mind is not boggled already, it will be on this number fourth, fourth one. The fourth aspect about God's decree, it includes every single detail. God's decree includes every single detail. How can we have confidence that God can bring his whole plan to its intended end? Because he plans every single detail. Now, if I were to promise my family a vacation to California, say, come on, Raquel, kids, we're going, we're going to California. That's the plan. That's what we're doing. But you recognize if I, if I make a promise like that, make a plan like that, if I don't ever set a time, um, a way to even get there, uh, accommodations, um, you know, set aside money, what are we going to do when we get there, where we're going to stay. If I don't, if I don't set that stuff, up, don't plan those details, my, my promise of going to California is not going to hold fast. It's not going to be true. If I make a plan like that, you actually need to plan the details. No one sets to go off on vacation without planning any of the details. Now imagine a God who plans redemption and new creation and self-glorification and exaltation, creates this world to, to manifest and to show his glory and doesn't worry about any of the details. No, God is going to achieve his ends because he has comprehensively planned everything. Ephesians 1.11, look at this text with me. Ephesians 1.11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing's excluded. Even what we consider to be random acts of chance are from the Lord. Listen to this one in Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's like saying that you roll the dice. What, what more random can you get than casting lots or throwing the dice? It's every decision is from the Lord. Amazing. There's no chance. There's no coincidence. Providence, yes. Decree, yes. Chance, no. When God says all things, he means all things, including even the fate of the wicked. Consider these last three passages. Matthew eleven twenty five and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will to hide these things from the wise and understanding, to hide the gospel. What's, this, what's Jesus talking about here? How can that be God's gracious will? 1 Peter 2.8, talking again about the Jews who've rejected the Christ, who have stumbled over this cornerstone. It says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. These verses are shocking. And as we consider these things, now is a good time to stop. Let these truths soak and then answer some of these objections that no doubt are flooding into our mind. How can God be good? 
If he's, if he's planned even the wicked and their destruction, how can God be good? How can we say he's a loving God? How can we be held responsible? How can someone who is destined to stumble over the Lord Jesus Christ, who's, who's been blinded to believe the gospel, it's been hidden from them, how can they be responsible? How can we not say that God is the author of sin? If he has decreed every single thing, we can look outside and we can see suffering, we can see terrible things, atrocities happening. If we say that's part of God's plan, then how is he not capable, responsible for that evil action? These are serious questions and we must answer them. You can't just say, well, we're going to have to let those, um, you know, just seeming contradictions, I have to let them lie, you know, help, help they don't affect my walk for the Lord. No, we need to answer those things because there are good answers in Scripture. So we're going to look at those two things. First one, how can we be responsible and not just robots? If God has planned everything, does that mean we're just robots? We're just going through the motions? And number two, how can God not be responsible for evil and sin? So let's look at those objections. How can we be responsible and how can God not be? Okay, how can we be responsible and how can God not be? Because it would seem if this is really true, if God has decreed the end from the beginning, he's included all the details, all things are according to counts of his own will, then we're just robots. What is free will? What is volition? What is our decisions? If it's already been planned out completely by God, then we're not, we must not be responsible for anything, either good or bad. What about fatalism? Whatever will be, will be, I guess. I have no ability to change my fate. Free will is null and void. Not only that, but as I mentioned, God must be the author of sin because if he's created all things and decreed all things, then he's decreed the fall. He's decreed sin to come into his creation. Could God really destine people for hell? Now at this point, our emotions can run very high. And, and oftentimes when our emotions get high, our ears shut and we can't hear anything else. So I just ask that you would just hear me out as we look at some of this, because some of the common reactions that we get is that is not my God. And I know people who have flat out rejected these scriptures because they say that is not my God. My God is the God of love. My God is the God of compassion. That is not my God. That's not the God of the Bible. God would never do that. It just can't be. I could never worship a God like that are some of the responses that I've heard. Now, the scriptures are clear. We've, we've gone through these passages. No funny business here. I haven't taken this big logical scheme and tried to impose it on the scriptures. We've just read out these passages. It's, it's, it's the logic now in our mind that's creating the confusion. It's saying, well, if this is true, then this must happen. We're doing logical deduction, rationality. Okay, I'm not saying logic here is bad either, but this wasn't a result of logical reasoning that got us to this dilemma. It's in fact reading these passages of scripture. Now, as we consider this issue, the first question I want to ask is, if God has decreed all that comes to pass, has God decreed sin? Has God decreed what is evil? Has God decreed calamity? Look with me at Lamentations 3, 37, 3. That's the first verse under this heading. How can God, how can we be responsible and God not be? Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass? 
unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Your translation might have good and calamity. King James Version says good and evil come from the mouth of the Most High. And when Jeremiah is writing this, he's writing about the destruction of Jerusalem under the Assyrians and later the Babylonians, ruthless warriors. As he sees this great calamity, he recognizes it is from the Lord. God is not just behind the good things. God is behind all things. At the same time, we know that God does not sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. We see in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It's completely pure. God does not sin. James 1, 3, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So how can these things be reconciled? How can God decree all things and yet have no darkness and all light and not tempt anyone to evil? How can we reconcile these truths? One thing we cannot do. We cannot, we cannot abandon the goodness of God. We cannot abandon what 1 John 1, 5 says. We cannot abandon what James 1 says and say, well, God must tempt the people to evil. No, we can't abandon those truths, but neither can we abandon the truths that says that God has decreed the end from the beginning. Okay, we, have, we can't just throw away scripture we don't like. Okay, that, that is not an option that we have as Christians who believe the word of God. <clears throat> so how can God plan for both good and bad and yet not be responsible for sin? And how can we be responsible if God has planned every detail? I want to let that lie for a second. I want to look at our own responsibility. Then we'll come back to God in just a second. As we consider our own responsibility before God, on your sheet there, you see that it's grounded in two things. Okay, why are we held responsible even if God has decreed the end from the beginning? Two reasons. First, we act according to our volition. We act according to our volition. We're going to look at some texts in a moment, but I'm just stating these things right now. We act according to our volition. What I mean by that is that we are not coerced to make decisions, to make to, to perform actions. If I raise my hand like this, I'm not being coerced or being pulled by a string by God to do that. I have made up my mind to do that. And I'm speaking right now because I have determined to speak. I, I'm exercising my will and volition. And in doing so, I am responsible because I do not know the decree of God in terms of the future events that are going to happen. And so what I'm exercising right now is my volition, my will. I'm making decisions that I deem are going to be good for me and for you. And those decisions are not coerced. Because they're not coerced, I am held responsible for them. And we see this all over the place in the Bible. We see a number of passages that tell us to choose, to tell us to decide, to tell us to follow. We must exercise our will. We must heed that call and act. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right? And so we understand from texts like that, that we must choose. We must act. And for those who did not choose to serve the Lord and rejected him, they're going to be held responsible because they acted according to their volition. They rejected God and so they're held responsible 
responsible. They weren't coerced in their decisions. Second grounding of our responsibility is that we are creatures accountable to our creator. Okay, we are creatures accountable to our creator. The first one we can understand quite readily. If someone is acting on their own volition, they're held responsible for their actions. This one takes a bit more work to think of. We are creatures under God as creator. You can think of responsibilities. You can think of accountabilities in terms of relationships. Children are accountable to their parents. They must obey them. And if they don't, they're held responsible for disobeying their parents. An employer is responsible to their employee. They must listen. If they don't, then they're held accountable. They're held responsible. Because there's a form of hierarchy, we're we're held responsible or accountable to our government. Okay, we have certain laws, speed limits. We need to follow those things because we're responsible. We're accountable to them. And the same is true of the creator-creature distinction. God has made us and he has given us laws. He has given us ways to live by and to follow. And so we as creatures are accountable, responsible to our creator. Just because we're creatures, automatically we are responsible. There is an authority above us that has told us how we ought to live. And so that, therefore we are responsible to that authority, in this case to God himself. Now we think about God for a second. There's no one above God. What does it mean for God to be responsible? God to be accountable. There's no one like him. There's no one beside him. There's no one above him. Responsibility or accountability. God gives an account to no one. Jonathan Edwards once said that by very nature, by definition of the term, whatever God does is by definition good. Because he is the standard of all goodness. He's the standard of righteousness. Whatever God does is by definition good. There is no one above him. There is no law above him. There is no person above him, no God above him that says what you are doing is wrong. Whenever we accuse God of wrongdoing, we're borrowing his sense of justice. A sense of justice we've learned from him because he is the very definition of what is just, what is right, what is true. And so therefore, in that sense, when we think about that creator-creature distinction, we are responsible to God no matter what because we are his creatures. And God is not responsible because he's God. Because whatever he does is right. Okay, we gotta gotta let that sink in for a minute. This This is who God is. Whatever God does is right. That could be a scary thought. But if we read about God in the scripture, we realize he is a God who is loving, who is merciful, who is compassion, compassionate. He's good. So we can be thankful that we serve a righteous God. Okay, so we're responsible. We act volitionally. We're accountable to our creator. God cannot be charged with evil because all of his acts are, in definition, righteous acts. Okay, one, one more comment on being robots. Okay, are we, are we just robots? But think about how God has made us. You have the ability to, to express love and joy, uh, to, to have a relationship with our creator. You know, who is man that God is mindful of us? You know, it's amazing how God has made us. Okay, we're not robots, but we're creatures. Sometimes we need to get that in our head when we have these great accusations towards God. We need to be humbled like Job, that we're just a creature, that we are made not, not for ourselves. This world's not about us. This world is about God. 
You are made for God. You exist for God and for his glory. That's it. Okay, that should be humbling to us. We, it shouldn't cause us to shake our fist at God. How, how foolish do we look? Shaking our fist at our creator. Like the pot is angry with the potter. Now there's one God, one Lord, one creator, one sovereign, one who is independent, one who is free, and he has made us for himself, for his own glory. He did not give up or give to us lordship over this creation in terms of we have more freedom than God does. Okay? Now his purposes are so amazing that they include even the voluntary acts of men, volitional acts of men, and they accomplish exactly what God has purposed. Okay? We can't stay on this topic too much longer. I want to look at a few verses. Genesis 50, 20. It says, as for you, here's Joseph speaking to his brothers after they sold him into Egypt. Now they're fearful for his life. Jacob has just passed away. And now they're afraid that their younger brother Joseph is going to take revenge. And so Joseph says to them in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. Okay, you purposed evil against me but god meant it god purposed it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today were those evil acts of those brothers contemplating killing their younger brother joseph and then throwing him in a pit and then selling them to traitors into egypt were those evil acts plain but purposed by god planned by god yes they were does that mean they're not responsible they're just robots they were just doing what god did no They are held responsible because they meant it for evil. They were acting according to their own freedom in terms of wanting to do an evil act to their brother. And yet God in his great sovereignty and his lordship and his his inscrutable plans purposed that for good. It's amazing. Acts 2.23, the same thing. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is here Peter speaking to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, saying that Jesus was delivered up. He was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay, this, this was purposed by God, and yet you did it. It was the hands of lawless men that carried it out. And they are going to be held responsible for their lawless actions. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says, For truly in the city, as the, as the early Christians prayed, they say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Does God's plan include the evil acts of men? Yes, it does. Because it includes the gospel. And the gospel was planned by God and the gospel involved Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Gentiles crucifying the Lord of glory, doing exactly what God's hand had predestined to take place. They meant it for evil and God purposed it for redemption to accomplish our salvation. Amazing. Isaiah 10, 5 to 19 here, here, talking about this passage, Isaiah is recounting, he's talking about how Assyria is being used by God to judge the nation of Israel. And yet God is going to turn on and judge Assyria, even though they're just a tool in God's hand. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 10, starting in verse 5. Ah, Assyria, God speaking, the rod of my anger, 
The staff in their hands is my fury. Okay, God is using them to bring judgment. He says this in verse six, against a godless nation, I send him and against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. That's what God purposed to do with the Assyrians. But then he says this about the Assyrians in verse seven, but he does not so intend and his heart does not so think but it is in his heart to destroy. He says this in verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, it's the king of Assyria speaking, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. And then God returns in verse 15 and speaks to him. He says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it or the saw magnify itself against him who yields it as if a rod should wield him who lifts it or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Amazing text. Assyrians are used by God to carry out judgment. And they weren't being all righteous about it. It wasn't like, okay, we fulfilled God's plan, so therefore we should get a reward. No, they were fulfilling God's plan, because it was, but it was not in their heart to do so. It was in their heart to commit wickedness and to destroy. And so God turned around and he judged them. Even though God was using them to bring judgment upon Israel, God turns and judges them because of what was in their heart. And so again, we see responsibility established by acting according to their own volition, according to their hearts even though they are accomplishing the very purposes of God without fail. And so God does not commit evil, and yet he ordains it. He purposes it, and yet he does so through the free acts of creatures. Imagine the wisdom and the power of God. Now, how those two things come together, that God can so ordain the future with the, with the free will acts of, of billions of people and all these different conditions and circumstances and God's purposes are being fulfilled down to the very letter, how he can do that is just amazing. It's amazing. Okay, we are not robots. We are, we are creatures that have volition and will and love and emotions. We, we make decisions on our own and yet we're fulfilling exactly what God has intended us to do. So it doesn't absolve us of responsibility. It doesn't mean we can just sit back and say, oh, this is fatalism, whatever it will be. No, we need to pursue God and to seek Him. That's what He requires of us. If we deny that God has planned or intended or ordained evil actions, then we end up denying the truth of the gospel and that it was planned before the foundation of the world. Then the gospel becomes a plan B. It becomes a, oops, what happened to my creation? I better, I better think of something to, to redeem things here. That is not how our God works. That is not the God of the scriptures. God has determined all things. He has decreed his plans and purposes will stand and they cannot be thwarted. Now, I want to look at some practical implications here quickly. Practical implications. First one I mentioned, the gospel is not plan B. The gospel is not plan B. Revelation 13, 8. 
Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This book of life of the Lamb who was slain was written before the foundation of the world. The Lamb who was slain. Christ slaughtered before the foundation of the world. Why was Christ slaughtered in the mind of God before the foundation of the world? Why was Christ why did Christ die on the cross? For sin. So sin was also part of God's plan to demonstrate his glory in the Lord Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. That includes Judas and the Pharisees and Herod and Pontius Pilate. All of these things took place exactly as God intended them, yet these individuals are held responsible. Acts 2.23 and 4.27 and 28, we've already read to see that the gospel was not plan B. Ephesians 1.3-5. Rather than accusing God of wrongdoing, the scriptures praise God for his wonderful plan. It says in Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Okay, this is not a plan B. This is not a, a band-aid solution. God intended the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fall, the redemption, and then the new heavens and new earth, the recreation, the new creation, all part of God's plan. Second implication of God who decrees is the certainty of God's promises. The certainty of God's promises. Numbers twenty three nineteen says this, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? This is one of the greatest truths about a God who is Lord over all, a God who decrees is that he keeps his word. He has the power and the authority and he exercises his lordship to be able to do it. His promises never fail. Hebrews six thirteen to 20 says this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And then verse 17 So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his purpose and now this oath in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Imagine that God's promises of redemption, of salvation, covenanting his grace and his love and his mercy will be accomplished. He's sworn it in himself. His purpose is going to stand. He's given an oath. It's going to happen. 
Jesus Christ has died. He's, he's rose again. He's our priest. He now intercedes for us and he's coming again. And we know that for sure. It's wonderful. Look what this verse says. We have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul because of a God who decrees. We should rejoice. Now, last verse I want to look at. Romans eight twenty eight to 30. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Three promises in this text that depend on a God who decrees and keeps his word. First is a promise that all things work together for good. All things work together for good. This is one of the great promises that we have today as Christians. In fact, if you go into a Christian bookstore, I know there's not many of those anymore, but you see the, the signs on the wall, you can buy these placards. Almost always it's Romans 8.28, reminding you of this great truth that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. What a great promise that is. And it truly is a great promise. Now this verse doesn't mean that all things that are coming to you are good things. But all things, whether that's suffering, whether that's trials, adversity, all things that we experience are working together for our own good. God has purposed them for our good. That's a wonderful promise that we should hold dear. Now, how can this promise be true if God is not sovereign over all? If God who's not purposed and made his plans from the beginning if God is not a God who decrees an effective and eternal, eternal decree that cannot be thwarted. This promise rests on the fact because God's eternal plan and purpose is sure. The second promise in verse 29. The promise of our sanctification. Promise of our sanctification. It says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, we're, we're predestined as Christians to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Our sanctification, our, our holiness. Now, how can this be true if God is not a God who decrees and who has purpose and who will accomplish his purposes? He hasn't left the task of sanctification completely to us. For it is God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. He's going to guarantee that we are conformed into the image of Christ because he has declared it and his purpose will stand. That's the grounding of this great promise. The third promise in verse 30, the promise of our justification and glorification. The promise of our justification and glorification. Verse 30 says, and those whom he predestined you know, to be conformed into Christ's image, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, declaring them not guilty, giving them a righteous standing before God, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, people make a right point on this text by saying glorified here is 
is in the past tense. Even though our glorification is future. But it's as good as done because God is a God who purposes and his purpose will come to pass. Nothing can thwart his plan or his purposes. And so we have been glorified past tense because it will be accomplished. Because God is a God who decrees. Now, how can we trust these promises, these great promises in Romans 8, 28 to 30? It's because of God who decrees. A God who has purposed from the beginning to accomplish his will in creation, in all things. And this is exactly why Romans 8, which is so chock full of these great promises, comes right before Romans 9. Because Romans 9 tells us, how can God fulfill such great promises? How can God love us? How can we never be separated from the love of God as Romans 8 starts to end? How could God keep us? How can he do that? Well, Romans 9 answers that. Because it doesn't depend on our will. It doesn't depend on, on him who works, not on our exertion, but it's God who shows mercy. It's God who shows compassion. It's God's purpose of election might stand. It's because God is the God who decrees and he will accomplish it. So that great chapter on election that we see in Romans 9 is the very foundation for why the promises in Romans 8, we can guarantee that they're going to be true. It's wonderful how the scriptures all tie together. And so we certainly do have a great assurance because of the lordship, the authority, the wisdom, and the power of our God. The great constant of our life is that God is in control of all things and that he has intended the end and he's intended the details to accomplish his glory. That should cause us to worship him. Let's pray.